and it is a great pleasure to welcome back to the program uh, the Archbishop of Chicago, His Eminence uh, Francis Cardinal George, uh, who is, of course, the first native Chicagoan to the Archbishop of Chicago. Isn't that right? That's correct, Professor Rosenberg. Thank you for your welcome. Uh, the year was 1937, I believe. That's the year I was born, anyway. <laughs> that there comes into the world a soul called Francis. What do you remember of your childhood in Chicago and of your youth in Chicago? Oh, I remember uh, the neighborhood. Uh, Which neighborhood was it? On the northwest side, uh, near mm -hmm. about 3900 north and 6200 west, so near Irving and Austin. Uh, and um, we uh, used to inhabit the neighborhood. I think uh, a lot of children growing up at that time in Chicago did that. Uh, the neighbors watched out for each other's children. Mm -hmm. So the children were relatively free. We kind of roamed the neighborhood. And uh, so I have a lot of memories of that and uh, memories of uh, the grade school I went to, St. Pascal's uh, School, um, and uh, the sisters who taught me. But uh, my family, uh, both my parents and my sister and myself, and the extended family, I had a lot of cousins who lived in different parts of the city. Uh, it was family and neighborhood and church, and uh, my father worked for the Board of Education for a long period of time before he worked for uh, the state of Illinois, and so that brought us into a wider framework. Uh, my mother had uh, highly uh, developed musical talents, so she brought us into opera and symphonies and plays, and uh, it, was a, it was a good combination, uh, my parents, and uh, they offered us many different worlds. Um, so I have a lot of good memories. When and how did you discover your vocation? Well, uh, it was a family where we practiced the Catholic faith seriously. Uh, it was the framework for our life together. And I suppose uh, when I made my first communion is when I first thought about the idea of becoming a priest. That was an important moment for me religiously. I was a small tyke. But I think some of the developmental literature on religion now talks about eight, nine, ten years old as a period of interest in religion on the part of children. And I forgot about it after that for some years. I really came back to resolving the question towards the end of high school. And then you you go to school, you go to college at, um, in is it Ottawa? Yes, the University of Ottawa. Yeah, which is a Catholic institution. It, uh, it was when I went there. Uh, the order that I joined when I was 20 and I left Chicago uh, and that sent me there, uh, founded the College of Bytown, which became the University of Ottawa when it became the capital of Canada. And it was a bilingual institution, French-English. Um, and uh, where I went was the ecclesiastical faculties of the university. The university then was sold at a certain moment to the province of Ontario, and that bears the name the University of Ottawa. But the charter, which is one of the oldest uh, university charters in Canada, belongs to the new University of St. Paul, which is the ecclesiastical faculty of the old University of Ottawa. So you had a bilingual education up there? Uh, uh, well, the, the lectures were in Latin, of course, at that time. And, uh, however, the life in the seminary was in French. Right. So you had to learn French to survive. Alors, de ce moment, nous ne parlerons que français. Très bien, je suis toujours à votre disposition, si vous voulez. Is French still very comfortable for you? Yeah, it's after English, it's probably my most comfortable yeah, language. Lovely. I was just at Notre Dame uh, to take one of the Lenten conferences, Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Uh, my good friend Cardinal Dustiger invited me to give one of the conferences for mm -hmm. Lent, which are cultural events in France. They started in the last century, 
And uh, so it's on French television. And uh, so I, I gave my talk. And then after that, you have a lot of interviews on French television and French radio. And the French are very good in uh, talking. And so we, I enjoyed that very much. We were talking about Lustiger uh, just before we came on the air. And I think I'm right that he is the only Jewish member of the College of Cardinals. Is that I right? believe that's true, yeah. Uh, it's an odd, it's an interesting story. It's yeah. not an unusual story. There are others, I think, who are Jewish children who were saved during the years of the Holocaust and raised under disguise in Catholic uh -huh. uh, institutions. Yeah. Still others, I think, who then converted to or became, uh, Catholicism. Yes. He's the only one who's risen I believe so. As far, so far as I know, certainly the only cardinal. Yeah, he he uh, was left with French Catholics uh, when he was quite young, I think six or seven, and his his parents perished in the Holocaust. When he was 13, I believe, he converted uh, to Catholicism, and, and he did it intentionally, I, you know, from what he could understand then, and he's grown in that. He's quite comfortable with that identity. I asked him about it sometimes. You'll be seeing him again in a few days, I and will. 170 or so other colleagues. Well, depending on how many show up. At the conclave, the very special uh, conclave. Consistory. Consistory. I'm, same mistake as I made before when we were chatting. <laughs> the conclave is Please. when you choose a new pope. That's right. The consistory is a special meeting called by the pope, uh, though some are saying it's sort of a rehearsal for the conclave to come. Well, the uh, consistory is a meeting when the College of Cardinals advises the pope, lets him know what's on their minds. Um, he listens, basically, from what I understand. It'll be the first one that I'm a member of. Uh, the second uh, purpose of this consistory, I would imagine, is to allow uh, the cardinals to get to know each other. There are so many new cardinals that he mm -hmm. made a few months ago, and uh, it's the first occasion when the entire college can get together and, I suppose, size one another up a little bit. Uh, among the new cardinals that he made a few months ago was the son of a former Secretary of State of the United States. That's right, Avery Dulles. You know, a distinguished Jesuit theologian. Mm -hmm. um, and who else was of special interest to you in the group uh, raised to the uh, level of cardinal just within the last few months? Well, the two uh, ordinaries, uh, that is, uh, archbishops of major sees, the Archbishop of New York, Edward Egan, who is a Chicagoan, mm -hmm. uh, born in Oak Park. And uh, then the new Archbishop of Washington is an old friend, uh, Cardinal McCarrick. So those would be the two that uh, I would know the best in, in, in that group, along with Cardinal Dulles, whom I've gotten to know uh, in various meetings over the years. Um, after that, the I know I know the new cardinal from South Africa, Napier. I know a number from around uh, the world because I've met them at one point or another. Uh, Let us face it directly. I read to you and I read to all of our listeners the first two paragraphs <laughs> of um, George Will's column, mm. uh, published, I guess, this Sunday. At any rate, uh, it's dated Sunday, May 13th, Chicago. And he says, this was published in probably three or four hundred American newspapers uh, over the weekend. Given ancient traditions and contemporary resentments of America's global ascendancy, it is fanciful to think that the priest who lives here, hard by Lake Michigan, might one day be summoned to the west bank of the Tiber River to hold the world's oldest office. It is fanciful, he says. Mm. However, Francis Cardinal George, 64, the first Chicagoan to be Chicago's archbishop, is temperamentally and intellectually suited to continue the work of Pope John Paul the mm second -hmm. your response how did you feel when you read that <laughs> well professor Willis is a very bright man and so I suppose uh, you think he knows something you uh, don't? yeah I uh, yeah I, I uh, 
I'm not very worried about becoming pope uh, for many reasons. Uh, the end result. One is that you're an American, I should say. That's think. right. That's that's a very important point. Uh, and uh, the resentments he speaks about are real. He bring a lot of baggage, uh, a lot of a lot of good things too. But uh, I think uh, those international positions um, are not positions that many other nations and peoples would care to see filled by um, an American. Uh, you become something of a curiosity, of course, when somebody writes that about you. Um, so I've had a number of, you know, news re requests for interviews and things of that sort, which I've generally turned down. Um, it's an interesting what he says about continuity, because um, uh, quite apart from his judgment, very often when the cardinals get together, from what I understand, uh, they look at the needs of the Pope and uh, the needs of the Church, rather, in the light of uh, the papacy's service. And sometimes there's uh, precisely something of discontinuity, uh, because uh, what one Pope does very well, uh, the next Pope doesn't, and so you have to bring somebody in to do something else again. In fact, looking forward to the meeting in Rome, is the three-day meeting beginning when? Uh, May the 21st. May Monday, the 21st. Monday. Uh, looking the forward to that consistory. What are the outstanding issues before the Church that will be addressed by the College of Cardinals? The uh, subject matter is very general. Uh, the Pope himself has said, look, we celebrated the Great Jubilee, now we have to start looking again at the roots of the mission. And so that's why he's moved from retracing the footsteps of Jesus to retracing the footsteps of St. Paul. Um, and so this is to look at uh, the mission of the church in the beginning of a new millennium, which is huge. It's a little bit specified by a document that Cardinal Sedano, who's the Vatican Secretary of State, who's responsible for organizing this meeting, sent out with seven general themes. But again, they're, they're as general uh, as you can get, important. And then the final line in his letter is, well, you can talk about anything you want to. The idea is the Pope hears the Cardinals, uh, particularly the new college, as newly constituted for the first time. And um, in speaking to him, we speak to one another, so we get a sense of what's on people's mind. In your mind, what are the outstanding issues and or problems facing the Roman Catholic Church right now? Well, I'm mostly focused on uh, the Archdiocese of Chicago, Cook and Lake Counties, and this country, as I'm a member of the American Conference of Bishops. Uh, as a cardinal, however, you have to have, and any bishop, the uh, universal church in mind. The, the problems are very different, however, from continent to continent. Our problems are not the same as the continent of Africa's problems. In every place, there's the fundamental problem of preaching the gospel and handing on the faith. But the challenges to that are, are different. Uh, in uh, this country, uh, I think uh, the uh, disassociation of spiritual experience from religious faith, faith in a historical revolution, revelation, is a strong mark of uh, the religious context in which we live that has uh, puzzling consequences for us. So that's a big problem. For Suddenly us. echoing in my mind is something I sometimes hear from my students. Mm. Indeed, I hear it particularly when I teach, as I am doing this semester, the course in the psychology of religion. Mm. And uh, uh, a theme that is often resonated is, well, I'm not exactly religious, but I'm very spiritual. Yes, exactly. What yeah. do they mean? Well, I think uh, just that, that they, they have a, a, an experience, a personal experience of transcendence. They would say that there's a spark of divinity in them. That goes back to Emerson. So it's not new exactly, but um, 
it's newly worked out in this uh, time, uh, but that's divorced from uh, a belief that God has intervened in human history at a certain moment through Moses, through Jesus, through other prophets, if you like, um, and that somehow that is normative for my experience, that I have to submit in faith, faith is a surrender, to belief in what God has revealed before I can embark on a spiritual journey. Uh, that's divorced from and so to be spiritual if not conventionally religious involves also putting aside any claim that a, uh, a an established religious tradition might have upon your moral life or upon your intellectual life universal truth claims wouldn't be admitted and that's true your moral uh, you have to decide for yourself what moral norms if any you're going to follow I mean or you know they're they're individual um, it's uh, an individualistic approach to religion, to some extent a consumerist approach to religion. It was interesting, the Sun, no, the Tribune, I think, some weeks ago, talked about choosing a church, and they said all kinds of things. Uh, does it have uh, care for the children uh, during the services? Does it have parking? And then it said, of course, you have to look at its theology. Does it agree with your religious point of view? Well, of course, that kind of takes out the need for conversion, and yet uh, historical religion, at least, keeps saying you have to get out of your point of view in order to convert to Christ, in the case of Christianity. I must tell you a story from the history of psychology, oh. as given by Edwin Garrigues Boring, the great historian of experimental psychology. Hmm. In 1885, only six years after he had established his laboratory, Wilhelm Wundt, in Leipzig, mm -hmm. the first experimental psychology laboratory in the world, supposedly, um, was talking with his only American student, James McKean Cattell, who had to do a doctorate. And Cattell was laying out his plans for a doctorate. He thought he would study individual differences in reaction times and explain how we would instrumentalize that. And Point said, I, it just doesn't, he doesn't see why. What's the point of it? Why map these individual differences? And Cattell said, well, people are very different. And each one is an individual. And we have to kind of understand the range of individuality. And suddenly, Wundt had... Uh, an insight. He said, "Aha! Jetzt verstehe ich, das ist ganz amerikanisch." Yeah, Aha! Yes. Now I understand. That's very American. American. <laughs> and you're talking about individualism. Yes. Unlimited by social constraints and by any sense of normative order, except those that we agree through politics or the courts to uh, impose upon ourselves. But not, but not by religion. No. Not by shared faith. No, uh, not for many people. So it's gone Americanish. It's been this way for a long time, hasn't it? Oh, yeah, it's been around a long time. As I go back to Emerson, and even before Emerson was uh, expressing something that is in the American soul. Yet, I go to the second paragraph uh, of the interesting piece by George Will after he treats of the one uh, <laughs> fancy really like or that fantasy piece, that we've <laughs> amused ourselves with. But then he gets on to something very interesting. He says, but then... George is invaluable here, meaning in Chicago and in the United States, as a critic, loving but unenthralled of American culture at a moment when complacency obscures reasons for anxiousness. A holder of doctorates in theology and political philosophy, George, who laughs easily and often, wears his learning lightly but wields it seriously. He casts a cool eye on today's triumphalism, which is the sin of pride tarted up for the post-Cold War victory parade. That's a packed paragraph, and it I is. think we need to unpack it and explicate right after we pause for some... Those are his intuitions, of course. ...coming commercials. Well you'll, well, you'll explain that right <laughs> after these words. Now, whatever George Will actually had in mind in that second paragraph becomes clearer as one reads the whole column, but I'm not here to read George Will's column, uh, <laughs> though others can find, it, can find it on the Internet. But what he's really saying is that you're troubled about to invoke a title of 
Anthony Trollope's, one of his great novels. You're troubled by the way we live now in this country. What exactly is it that troubles you? Well, in some sense, I guess what it troubles me is is classic, uh, but uh, it has uh, an American expression. Uh, there was a book a couple months ago called Bowling Alone, mm -hmm. which uh, you know was a kind of a popularization of uh, Bella's habits of the heart and uh, the, the whole thing of of uh, what used to save us from being trapped in individualism was our generosity in forming voluntary communities, and that's still there. It's a, it's a culture that rewards generosity. That's what Tocqueville saw as that's the right. saving grace yes, exactly. of the new America. But that's now because of um, pressures of, of uh, business and work. Uh, everyone's in the workplace now. Many have two jobs. Because of the isolation that surrounds, paradoxically, our increased contacts through the Internet and websites and television, we spend more time alone behind screens having contact with people, but it's not personal relationships. We don't talk as much with one another. We don't dine with one another. Uh, so we're becoming uh, victims of individualism. Individualism can be a good thing if it gives you courage and strength and a sense of self-respect so that you can then go out and help others. But it can also isolate you, and it seems to me uh, that the tendency now is towards an individualism that isolates, and uh, so there isn't any commonality any longer. You're evoking one of the classic oppositions, mm. that between freedom and order. Yes. Uh, I'm not sure there's opposition here. I think there is uh, an order that gives the illusion of personal freedom, but an order that is chosen. I mean, all this is voluntary, if you like. It's chosen. It's not imposed at this point, except to the extent that economic uh, movement imposes an order without our recognizing it. But all of this is done quite, uh, quite happily by a lot of folks. There are many who somehow sense that American civilization is on the downslope. It's still certainly very vigorous economically and very successful economically, but that our life, our public life, has coarsened. Mm. It's a term I've heard used often. That uh, it's simply vulgarized, that our kids learn far less in school. We presume to teach them far less than once we did. Uh, that the disciplines of the mind are not served. And that uh, a sense of moral order and moral requirements for ordinary life has been largely laughed to scorn and put aside so that just about anything is possible. Uh, do you think that's an, an accurate characterization of some gathering trends towards trouble? I think it's there. I don't know. Uh, it's hard to generalize about things like that. Um, there is certainly a difference in the way we think. Somebody was telling me uh, a couple of months ago about the great difficulty that she had in picking up one of those great 19th century novels uh, that she had read in college and enjoyed. And now uh, the way we think and uh, the way we construct uh, the language is so different that it's almost as hard to read the great 19th century novelist as it is to read Shakespeare. You have to study them. You don't read them for enjoyment uh, until you break through. Uh, those classical sentences that were more Latinate in, in many ways than uh, the kind of sound bites we've gotten used to now. All of that is a different way of thinking, whether it means we, we don't think uh, as well. I suppose uh, you'd have to step back and say, what do you mean by, by thinking? The vocabulary uh, of public life is coarsened. Uh, the, the cynicism uh, that inhabits public life is 
there, but it always was there to a certain extent. Uh, if you go back and read uh, the newspapers over the last hundred years, in part, uh, yeah, all of that is there. Behind that, there there is still that American generosity, the goodness of many people that you meet. Uh, maybe our public life isn't the best picture of who we really are any longer. I've done an odd thing. Here you are, one of the leading churchmen of the country, indeed of the world, and so far I've engaged you in secular discourse. Yet, instantly, what comes to mind is the question of whether the changes in our public culture and the changes in the texture of our life have something to do with the changes in our, or perhaps the falling away of the full authenticity of our religious life. Well, the way in which religious life impacts public life is certainly different in the last 50 years. That's been building for a long time. You go back and examine the public rhetoric before the Second World War. It was much more openly and easily religious. We censor us ourselves now, uh, and uh, sometimes the courts censor us too. Um, so that now in, in, in some areas, any religious influence that isn't kept uh, in private is resented as an imposition. Um, that's new. Beyond that, uh, it, it's hard to generalize also. Uh, there are always signs of religious renewal and religious vitality. Uh, there's a lot of interest in, in things religious. That's why I think you have me on your program, uh, I suppose. So, um, again, that's hard to, to generalize too, too quickly about uh, as well. However, uh, talking today with the auxiliary bishops we, we met about uh, the demands uh, for religious services on the part of people who are moving back to the city very often, the gentrification of neighborhoods. It's very hard on a pastor who's used to serving poor Hispanics, for example, or some other uh, group that isn't so well off, suddenly to be confronted with uh, very affluent professional people who approach the church as they approach everything else, more or less from a consumer's point of view. I come uh, to get services from you on these conditions rather than I come to get salvation on God's terms. Uh, You're speaking of, of lots of people who are Catholic by self-definition and who come mm -hmm. to Mass yes. uh, pretty regularly. Pretty regularly, yes. Mm -hmm. But they're coming to you for you to give them a service that they're in a way paying for. That's right. Mm -hmm. Rather than... Coming to discover what God calls them to, to uh, place uh, their ego outside of the center of their existence and to submit themselves in faith to God's will for them as interpreted by the church. Are they then really, quote, nominal Catholics, just as one might find nominal Jews mm. and nominal... Well, they're uh, practicing. Protestants. I wouldn't say they're nominal in the sense, usually we mean uh, people who don't practice their faith that are nominal Catholics. They attend. Yeah. Yes, they, these would be people involved in the church, but they go, they look to the church in a very different way. But the belief that they take from, the belief that sustains them religiously is of a different order than that which yeah, the I, church wants to teach them. It certainly presents different pastoral problems, what's going on in their hearts, you'd have to ask their confessor or spiritual director, mm -hmm. but the, the manifestation of it is, is very different. Why is that? Well, I suppose if you're used to being in charge of your life, and uh, you know, negotiating with people so that uh, there's a kind of a compromise, at least, if you can't get your way entirely. And you have uh, the means to do that, economic and others. Uh, that's a little different from... Uh, it's, it's very... It's an extra effort of God's, God's part, His grace, I think, to effect conversion 
you know, Jesus said it's easier for a rich uh, for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, what that means, I think, is not so much a condemnation of wealth as such, but rather a condemnation of self-sufficiency. Uh, Jesus was very much against self-righteousness, whether he found it in religious people of his day or the rulers of the country or anybody. Uh, and because self-righteousness means you don't need a savior and uh, your your own criterion for what's right and wrong. But doesn't another classic opposition or antinomy uh, sort of rise, that mm. between uh, faith and reason, or translated mm -hmm. between religion and science? Isn't that the source of the problem or the source of the altered uh, yes, it mode of religiosity? It, 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 yeah, that well, that from? would be the intellectual equivalent of it. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's power and there's wealth, etc. And then in... Um, the intellectual side of our life, there's uh, individual autonomy, uh, that the criterion of truth is always what you yourself can come to, show me. I wouldn't say that uh, faith and reason <clears throat> is the same dialogue as religion and science, unless you mean to say that science is the only manifestation of human reason. I think there are other uh, approaches to reality that are just as reasonable as the approach of scientific method, important though that is. So I, I think faith and reason does enter into it, and uh, that dialogue is as old as, uh, well, it goes into Judaism uh, before Christianity. Um, you know, the early apologists uh, used to talk about what has Jerusalem got to do with Athens? What has Jerusalem, the city of faith, got to do with Athens, the city of reason? And that continues down through the medieval universities uh, and uh, into our own day. Um, but, but that's a very fruitful conversation. That's one I enjoy. That the, that the Roman Catholic Church has adapted far more fully to and has incorporated far more uh, readily uh, the major findings of modern science than, has, than have, say, the fundamentalist Protestant denominations. I think, for example, of the statement given only a year or two ago by the Pope uh, in a, uh, before a conference of uh, scientists held in Rome in which he, not for the first time, uh, made clear that the church accepts the evolutionary model for the generation of uh, the various forms of life from the beginning up to now, but it doesn't find that inconsistent with the book of Genesis. It, yes, uh, that's true, uh, depending upon which evolutionary model you're talking about. If you're talking about Darwinianism in the classical sense of, of natural selection and chance mm -hmm. and without a creator, then that kind of evolutionary uh, worldview we wouldn't accept. As a mechanism, however, uh, it, it can be incorporated. I, as a mechanism set in motion by the yeah, creator. exactly. And sustained yeah. by the creator. And, yeah. and with, the, you know, it depend, there are theories of evolution that are much more finalistic in there from Lamarck on. And uh, they're getting a new hearing today, and uh, arguments from order, etc. Uh, the church has confidence in human reason. You know, we're created by a God who makes us smart and free, as well as everything else, as well as holy. So uh, we have confidence in human reason more than perhaps a lot of people have today, in the sense that in the end, truth is one and there will be agreement. But we may go through generations where we have to keep the conversation going because it doesn't seem to be going in the same direction. For me, as someone rather interested in religion and who's done a little bit of work on the scholarly side concerning <laughs> the history of religions and who is a Jew by background and by loyalty, uh, it has occurred to me, and I put this to you as a kind of proposition which I will then elaborate looking, of course, eagerly for your response after some impending commercials. <laughs> it has occurred to me that in a way, uh, a quality of all of the Western religions, the peoples of the book, that is 
Judaism, Christianity, and Islam is that they are Terra-centric. They are focused on this earth. Mm. And one wonders how the great narrative core of Christianity itself would adapt to uh, the new cosmologies that are evolving mm. uh, and the new sense of the, ex the vast extent uh, of reality. Mm -hmm. I mean to come to that and mm -hmm. press that upon you, if I may, right after we pause for these words. Yeah. And we return to Francis Cardinal George, who uh, has taken time out from an incredibly active schedule. I was spying on you today on the <laughs> Internet where they've published uh, your schedule day by day. Not every appointment, but no. the main events of the days. And you obviously are keeping very busy. Uh, but let me uh, explain where I want to take you now. You uh, have referred uh, to the image of Christ, particularly as given in the book of Revelation. Uh, uh, Christ as Pantocrator, that is the Christ who dominates the whole cosmos, yes, it's a Greek rather than uh, the Christ of uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who is uh, fulfilling an well, earthly Christian mission. Christian says it's the same person. Of course it does, mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. But uh, I call your attention, or I direct your attention to something that you know uh, uh, quite well, I'm sure, namely to modern cosmology. Mm. And just for, among other figures, to Alan Guth, who now posits, and he has many followers, that there is not merely our universe of 100 billion galaxies with an average of 100 billion stars in each galaxy, mm. but there is possibly an infinity of other universes, mm. which we may never be able to contact, but which all the same are there, which mm. are part of that which is. Mm -hmm. um, how does Christian theology adapt to such an expanded vision of the scope of the cosmos itself? If there is a Christ of the cosmos, how do we fit them into that kind of expanding cosmological uh, but scientifically based vision? I'm not sure that creates a new problem. Uh, it creates new wonder. You see why I call that, see why I spoke earlier, uh, terror centrism. Mm -hmm. All of our religions focus upon whatever they are. Mm -hmm. all, the, all of the Western religions at least sure. focus upon human history yes. and uh, see God acting in human history. But mm -hmm. what if the universe, but we know that our universe is incredibly vast. We believe the scientists who speculate that there's probably an awful lot of other intelligent yes. life out there in the rest of the universe. Where well, do we yes, fit our conception of the transcendent into that larger cosmic model? It's terra-centric, if you like, because it's anthropocentric. Yeah. Uh, what's important about the Earth is that it's the home of the human race and uh, the human race is made in God's image and likeness. That remains true uh, no matter how many other beings uh, are in the universe. Uh, if uh, there are other uh, living beings who have intelligence and will and freedom and so many other uh, dimensions of uh, what it takes to make a human being, then they too would be made in God's image and likeness. Uh, what their relationship to Jesus Christ as Savior would be is a question of some theological speculation. Until we would meet somebody, I suppose it's hard to uh, know what their history would be. How would God have revealed himself to them? Would there have been the same uh, history that we believe uh, marks our existence and our time here? Um, I don't know that it uh, does any harm. It, it certainly makes us more humble towards uh, a God who creates. But if we say God is infinite, 
then to, to create one tiny little being is uh, no more or less of a challenge than to create the kind of cosmos that you've explained. Uh, God is infinite. That means there are no limits. And no matter how much we keep talking about the material universe, it's always limited. And so God is of a different order. And uh, it's only when you, when you get into questions of, of being as such, not material being, spiritual being, this being, that being, that, that you can uh, grasp uh, the nature a little bit of, of who God is. And, and it's, no, it's no more challenge to that kind of God to create a cosmos uh, filled with an, a quasi-infinite variety of beings than to create one. That gap from non-being to being is one that only God can fill. And uh, so the nature of creation doesn't change because there's a lot of it. A very active intellectual realm is Catholic uh, theology as such. Mm. Have these questions arisen oh, sure. in the work of modern Catholic theologians? Yes, yes. There, there are quite a few doing ecological-influenced uh, uh, theology, um, and a new appreciation of the unity of the earth, at least, and of our connection with the whole cosmos, which the cosmologists that you're talking about have shown us. It's fascinating, modern cosmology. But interestingly enough, the faith-reason dialogue or the religion-science thing that you mentioned is easier now with cosmologists than it is with biologists. That the old controversies around faith and uh, reason or religion and science on the cosmological level have been changed very much by the quasi-infinite uh, extent of the universe. And so there is a new conversation there. The tensions are uh, in what the Pope himself has called the last frontier, the human body, and uh, the biological sciences are now uh, pressing uh, forward in ways that uh, um, very often don't brook any kind of ethical uh, or explicitly religious limit. I've just been talking the other day to a friend of mine at the university, Leon Cass, oh, yeah. whose work I'm mean, sure you yes, know. Yes. And Leon just this week has an article in the New Republic. He is a physician as well as uh, a student of philosophy and mm -hmm. of intellectual history generally. And he's done an article, uh, and he's very much involved in the issues of medical ethics. Mm -hmm. He's just done an article in which he argues very strongly against uh, human cloning. Yeah. and are used for putting restrictions on the kind of work that might allow people to go in that direction. Mm -hmm. Indeed, he's involved as well in helping to frame some legislation which will be introduced uh, into Congress shortly. Uh, I'm sure that you would agree with that general uh, sense he has that such excursions into the making of life ought to be prohibited. Yes. Uh... That doesn't mean that there can't be uh, research done uh, around uh, some of the issues that come up when you talk about cloning. But cloning a human being um, is in principle wrong, not, not in its results. Many of the arguments against it are pragmatic. If you have to, as they had to do in order to produce the famous Dolly, go through 287 some failures, then uh, you've created uh, human embryos, uh, and that has uh, a value as a life, uh, which are going to die uh, just for the sake of experiment, and you're creating a whole Or you class, may need to destroy them. You may have to destroy them, yeah. So you can't experiment with human life in, in, in that way uh, because of the consequences, but even if, even if you didn't have the kind of consequences they're talking about where 
the cloned uh, reality would be grotesque, it would be cancerous, it would have an enlarged belly button, as they talk about, all kinds of things like that. That entirely aside, it's a principle, and, and uh, that's difficult in our culture because we're pragmatists and we argue from results. So people draw back because of the results, but I would say draw back because of the principles. And the principle there is you don't disconnect life and love, and that comes from our understanding who God is. In God, life and love are one, and uh, that permeates the whole of uh, sexual morality and the transmission of life as the church understands it. Whenever you have that separation between life and love, uh, you're in moral difficulty. And this brings us back uh, to Earth from the vast cosmos uh, to uh, two related issues on which your predecessor, Cardinal Bernadine, uh, took a very strong position, and you clearly take the same position, namely the seamless web with regard to the reverence for life, which means an absolute opposition to, on the one hand, abortion, Mm -hmm. and on the other hand, capital punishment. Yes, so the nature of the argument is different in the two cases. Uh, Abortion is an intrinsic evil and is never permitted because it's the taking of an innocent human life. In capital punishment, um, the the argument is from uh, the consequences. In other words, uh, the state has a right to defend its citizens. If they're invaded, you can fight back an invader. And uh, there are criminals who, in a sense, are invaders from within the society. But only a right to uh, kill anyone unless, uh, if everything else has failed. It's kind of an argument, uh, when you're talking about capital punishment, that's like the just war argument. So if everything else uh, to protect yourself fails, then you can kill. In this case, with the development of the modern penal system and the possibility of sentencing someone to it for life without possibility of parole, the society can protect itself from a killer, an invader, without killing him. And that's always the better way to go. Well, a test case arises. Mm. It's much in the papers at this very moment, of course, Mm -hmm. uh, by virtue of the delay in the execution of Timothy McVeigh. And we've had uh, articles and uh, we've had letters to editors all over the place. uh, And indeed, the Pope has also publicly, I think, taken the position that uh, Timothy McVeigh should not be executed. Yes. Uh, I would say that this is, you know, the test case at extremists. It is. If he's not to be executed, who in the world should be executed? If anybody deserves uh, to die for his his terrible crimes, it would be Timothy McVeigh. The victims are are many, and uh, there's not a question of sympathy for for Timothy McVeigh. It's a matter of principle. If you shouldn't kill somebody, then uh, that's the extreme case, as you said, uh, that tries Mm. the principle, but the principle holds. We can defend ourselves against Timothy McVeigh by incarcerating him for life thereby not being implicated ourselves in killing and uh, perhaps permitting him to repent of his terrible sins and crimes, but more than that, uh, you know, not uh, thinking that his death is going to bring closure. In talking to people who have been victims, their children have been killed, the real closure comes not with the death of the murderer, but with the forgiveness in their heart. That's when closure is possible. And there are many people who will come forward and are coming forward and saying just that. So this is a kind of an ersatz sort of closure uh, to the extent that it's surrounded by a vengeance or a sense of satisfaction. He got what he deserved, and you can make a case for that. The problem of closure is still there. And um, so uh, uh, the church's job is to say, not that we should be sympathetic to Timothy McVeigh, not at all. It's not a question of bleeding hearts here. It's a question of saying, for our sake as a society, if we can handle this without killing, it's better that we do so. And for the victims, to help them to come to a sense of closure that isn't marked by 
anything that looks like vengeance, but rather uh, by love and forgiveness, will bring them into a life of peace in ways that a simple execution can never do. But there are those who would argue, drawing perhaps more on sociological theory than upon theology, uh, there are those who would argue and have argued that uh, some such executions are absolutely required to restore the sense of communality and the sense of collective safety, which has, which sense may have been grossly disrupted by acts of particular viciousness. Well, the safety issue, I think, uh, is handled by being sure that uh, he, he is not free ever in his whole life to do anything like well, that. Well, put another way, that the sense that justice prevails and that we live in a society in which we are all responsible uh, is reinforced by holding people to their responsibility for the gross evil they have committed. And the ultimate way of holding them responsible is to take a life for the many lives they have taken. Well, that's a certain sense of, of justice, if you like. I think justice is served by his being condemned. I mean, uh, he's been tried fairly, and now, of course, that's being disputed a little bit, yeah. but uh, they say that even with the new evidence, the trial would still hold up. Um, so that's the sense of justice. When the sentence is, is, is uh, handed on, uh, the punishment uh, is something different, I think, and um, I'm not sure that justice is any better served by killing him than it is by incarcerating him for life. There are a number of other things we, uh, I, I hope to discuss with you, but also, of course, there are many people who will want to mm. put questions to you, okay. and we'll be getting to them a try. in a little while. Uh, but even before that, we'll be pausing briefly for an update on the evening's news from Andrea Darlis, and then directly back to Francis Cardinal George. And we return to Francis Cardinal George. Um, we will be entertaining your questions to His Eminence, and... Uh, we're opening the phone lines right now. The number as ever, of course, is 591-7200. is the area code if you're calling long distance. For those who are listening to us on the Internet at some very great distance, whether in Europe or in Asia uh, or in Latin America, if you want to get in on this conversation and would rather email us, the email is turned on and the screen is open in front of me. The email address, extension 720, as one word, at tribune.com, extension 720, at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E, dot com. Uh, let me turn to the other side of that seamless web, to mm. abortion. Uh, as I, I know that tomorrow you are receiving an award for mm. your own uh, commitment to the, let us call it directly, the anti-abortion cause rather mm. than the pro-life cause. No. You're receiving that award from the Caring Institute, um, mm. who have run television ad campaigns urging pregnant women to avail themselves of services other than uh, the services of an abortionist. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in fact, I agree with your position. I agree with Congressman Hyde's position. I agree with those who take the pro-life uh, position, and I've said so often on the air. But to quote uh, uh, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, or to use his image, his isn't the genie out of the bottle? We can't ever get it back in, can we? Well, I, I don't know what will happen 20, 50 years from now. Uh, there was a society once where abortion was practiced uh, as often as it is here, the Roman Empire. And uh, that's no longer around to practice abortion. Uh, a lot of the other phenomena uh, are present now in, in different ways. Uh, the, the, the tragedy of abortion very often is that a woman is so isolated and feels no support 
very often from the man who got her pregnant, uh, doesn't have family or friends that she can rely upon to accept her, and uh, doesn't, isn't sure what to do. Uh, so the church's obligation is not only to say abortion is sinful, it is, it's a crime, uh, morally, uh, no matter, in each case you have to, uh, you know, the conscience of individuals has to be respected, but it's also to see to it, I mean, in terms of judging the subjective guilt, uh, you have to see to it, however, that objectively you create a network that receives and that nurtures, and I think we do that very often. Sometimes the caricature is that, oh, well, pro-life people are just concerned about unborn life, but that's simply not true, as everyone knows. The churches, Catholic Church and many others, are, are the biggest network of, of uh, care and concern for people in difficulty, including pregnant women. But it's not enough yet, because there's so many abortions, it's clear that uh, we have to uh, go back to uh, the drawing board and be sure that we're nurturing people. On the other hand, you have the big argument pro-abortion in this country, which it binds it to freedom. And that the abortion has become uh, not just the kind of rare tragedy that used to justify it when we started this debate 25, 30 years ago, but now has become a symbol of human rights even, of freedom, of particularly of women. They don't have control over whom they give birth to, uh, then they have no real control over their lives. In this kind of culture where freedom is the primary cultural virtue, that's a very, very strong argument, but it's a terrible culture where you have to play freedom against life. And uh, so we continue to uh, espouse a uh, conviction that we should look again at what it was the finest legal system in the world up to Roe v. Wade, because everyone was protected at any stage of life, no matter how weak they were or how dependent, including the unborn. And we don't have that kind of legal system anymore, and our whole society suffers because of it. We're a much more violent society. Of course, the intermediate position is that you can achieve a considerable reduction in the rate of abortion, even if you don't fully recriminalize it hmm. uh, and eliminate abortions. Mm -hmm. um, and recriminalization would not eliminate so-called back-alley abortions anyway, in all likelihood. Uh, do you think that persuasive efforts undertaken through the mass media, uh, and for that matter, undertaken in direct face-to-face -face contact, whether in church or beyond, can reduce the recourse to abortion? Oh, sure. You can change a culture. Look at the culture of smoking and the acceptability mm -hmm. of it in, in a very few years. Yeah. Uh, everybody geared up, just as everybody geared up to protect abortion. All the women's magazines and so many others uh, decided to make it a case, and uh, all of a sudden the public discourse changed. That was deliberate and it's been deliberate on smoking. So it is possible if you have enough uh, consensus, particularly on the opinion makers, to change public opinion. Um, and that's the importance of uh, the people whom you're talking about uh, tomorrow night. They're trying yes, to uh, they uh, ran a television ad campaign mm -hmm. uh, with a limited budget, but they were, I guess, the two ads they developed, the Caring Institute here in yes. Chicago, mm -hmm. um, the two ads they developed uh, were run a few hundred times, and there is evidence, uh, since they urged women in that situation to call a particular 800 number, which, mm -hmm. and that those women would then be directed to agencies that could help them, help them. through mm -hmm. their difficult um, so crisis. When, and those calls increased by eightfold or tenfold. Sure, sure. That's what I say. It's a way of reaching out, of, of, of doing away with that isolation and of uh, stopping uh, a woman from doing something that many women, at least, uh, regret very often. Uh, we have highly developed post-abortion uh, counseling uh, to assure a woman that she's forgiven, that God loves her, and uh, that this isn't something that should separate her. 
from God nor from others, but nonetheless it has separated her from her child, and uh, they know that, and it, it's sometimes a very difficult thing, uh, one that demands great sympathy and not condemnation. You, or rather the Archdiocese uh, and its school system, the parochial system, have yes. just received kudos from uh, WBEZ, the National mm -hmm. Public Radio Station, which has done a, a special feature on the parochial school system. I'm of sorry Chicago. I missed that. I heard about it, though. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they even quote, they had Paul Vallis talking, mm -hmm. saying that he very much admires the system and he thinks that the public school system could learn a great deal from it. Uh, and he wishes that they could duplicate the achievements of the Catholic school system in the public schools. I was telling you privately, one of my main burdens as a college professor is that I have found, and my audience has heard me say this a thousand times, mm -hmm. I found students coming to college increasingly ill-prepared and ill-educated, sort mm -hmm. of pre-literate mm -hmm. with regard to what they've read, with regard to their own verbal skills, with regard to their writing skills, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, I imagine that would not be true if all of the students that came to me came to me from the parochial school system. What's the difference? What's the nature of the difference? Why do you guys, and it's across the country, not merely in Chicago, do no. so much better than do the public schools? Well, I'm not sure we always do. I mean, there are sterling uh, public schools, and we're all in favor of improving the public school system. I have great admiration for those who are trying to do mm -hmm. that. Uh, some of it might be scale. Uh, certainly there is that conviction that every uh, one is made in God's image and likeness. It, it, they're, they're faith institutions, and uh, so therefore, if you believe the child in front of you has an infinite value and has eternal eternity before it, uh, that permeates a kind of a, a sense of the, how you go at things. Um, the, the sense that no matter how many people uh, flee from you, and no matter how isolated you might feel, nonetheless God loves you, gives a person courage to pick up and go on. And uh, so therefore there is a sense that I can do it, even if in fact my family uh, is quite broken and a lot of other things, they're encouraged to, to continue to uh, succeed. They start at the same place as everyone else, and in inner city they start behind the national average. Uh, the tests, uh, the national tests we give show that by the time they're in the seventh grade, they're well ahead in the 70th percentile of the national average, even in these very poor schools. Um, so I don't know what the secret is, except we have extraordinarily dedicated principals and teachers who see this as a vocation. It's not just a profession, not just a job. They give themselves entirely. Uh, and I think that that rubs off on the kids. Isn't there something else beyond issues of faith, which may have a great deal to do with it? You simply... It's a different school culture. You work the kids harder. You mm -hmm. put them in uniforms very often. Mm -hmm. You uh, require more homework from them. But you, you can make those kind of demands because you believe that uh, uh -huh. the last uh, context of one's understanding oneself is not citizenship, but something more than that. Uh -huh. And so you have the advantage of, of a religious context, and yeah. it makes a difference. Then maybe the public schools can't duplicate it. Well, I think, uh, no, they can't do that. No. <laughs> Not anymore, anyway. They did it one time, yeah. until about 50 years ago, the public schools were largely Protestant schools. We go shortly to some commercials, and then, of course, <laughs> to the telephones, 591-7200. What are the outstanding problems you face in the archdiocese these days? Again, the constant problem of handing on the Catholic faith in, in, in a culture that, in some ways, is it, it, it resisted, in other ways, is open to it. Um, there was a I think a great deal of experimentation in catechesis and uh, that uh, has resulted in uh, some religious illiteracy uh, that we have to try to correct and that is being addressed. 
More concretely, uh, I suppose for many people, we have uh, economic problems um, because of the school system, but other reasons too. But the schools are an enormous drain uh, on uh, the assets of uh, the archdiocese. And you had to close a few of them down, and that always yes. gets some people aroused, doesn't well, it? Well, I can understand that. It gets me aroused too. You close a school down, the little kids write you and say you're closing off their life. It's mm -hmm. a terrible thing. I hate to do it. Um, but uh, we didn't for two years. There was a moratorium on schools closing. We closed one or the other campus of schools, but for two years. Now, this year, we had to go back, and uh, we closed five elementary schools, only one in the city, four outside the city, and um, three campuses, however, of city schools that were multi-campus uh, schools. Two high schools, unfortunately, closed. So uh, we, we closed a number this year again. Uh, in a sense, they closed themselves. They're no longer viable economically, and so uh, fewer people are going to them. Um, you know, it's poverty that closes schools. I've been saying that since I've been here, uh, and uh, that's been the case again this year. Speaking of poverty, we will attempt to avoid it for the radio station by pausing uh, thank you. for some commercials. <laughs> yeah. And then we go directly to the phones. Uh, one or two lines are available. They were all taken a moment ago, but some people got tired of waiting. So if you've been trying to reach us, try again quickly. 591 7200, the number. 591 7200. If you hit the busy signal, don't be totally discouraged, but call again after we say goodnight <coughs> to a prior caller. And we'll be right on to your calls and to the emails as well. The email address <coughs> being extension720 at tribune.com. But first, these words. Our very special guest tonight is Francis Cardinal George, OMI. You know, we've said nothing about the Oblate Order. You want to take one minute on the Oblates before we go to the phones on 591 7200? What do you want me to say about uh, my religious family? I think lots of people don't know much about the order. Well, that's probably true. We're uh, fairly large, but uh, low-key because we don't run big institutions. It was founded to uh, reestablish the church in southern France as a response to the French Revolution. And uh, from there, it reached, it, it reached out very quickly to do missions in many other parts of the world. So it's, it's very international, but in small numbers around the globe. We go to the phones. Five nine one seven two double zero is the number. You are the first. Hello, you're on the air. Hi, Milt. Great program as always. Thank you, sir. Uh, Cardinal George, uh, first of all, thank you for your wonderful contribution to humanity. Oh, thank you, uh, Cardinal. I would like your wisdom on the notion of our founding fathers of the United States of America and our Constitution and the role of our political politicians, both nationally, locally, and statewide, as well as our courts, how do you think our founding fathers would view that if they were here with us today and viewing the job, or if you will, the grade, if you will, of some of the people and how they're running both our court systems as well as our governments? That's an awfully broad question. Did you have in mind any particular... <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I had in mind primarily uh, the court systems. You had touched on the issue of abortion earlier, mm -hmm. and it seemed to me that the, the courts have uh, graciously in, empowered uh, the concept of abortion, and also I had in mind the the way the last uh, election was conducted and held. Mm -hmm. uh, I just, I guess, I guess... I, I wanted your wisdom on how you feel that's all un unfolding. Well, there are many people who would make the argument that the courts uh, for some decades have usurped authority 
in being the people who pass on what the Constitution means at any particular moment, sometimes without much reference to the document itself. People who are very uh, much strict constructionists, as they're called, would say that a, a, the court addresses too many issues that, in fact, it has no authority to address. It should be left to the legislature and the political process, that especially the abortion issue, but others too, they short-circuited uh, the necessary uh, time uh, that it takes to form popular opinion, and therefore there's a kind of a wound in the body politic because of uh, a constitutional uh, coup, if you like, by the court, uh, resolving uh, an issue that it should not have resolved in that way. Um, that, you know, do you want an activist court, or do you want a court that kind of presides uh, over the political process from afar? Um, entering into it as they did the last time certainly uh, made it clear that finally the courts are the ultimate rulers, uh, or at least arbiters, of our political fate. I I'm not sure uh, where to go with that. I I'm sympathetic to that argument, uh, but uh, you'd have to get somebody who knows uh, far more political theory and constitutional law than I. Thank you. Mm -hmm. We thank you, sir, for the call. And quickly, to another, 591-7200 is the number. And uh, if you are at a greater distance and want to send us an email posing your question in that form, the email address, extension 720, as one word, extension 720, at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E, dot com. And here is the next caller. Good evening. You're on the air. Good evening, Dr. Rosenberg and yes, Cardinal sir. George. Good evening. Uh, Cardinal, I, I, make, uh, I address my question to you with a recent uh, pastoral on racism in mind. Hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Given the confusion uh, in the uh, public mind on this whole issue of homosexuality and lesbianism, uh, and also the, the evidence that this is not a permanent condition and uh, in many instances can um, be reversed or their reorientation can take place as evidenced by uh, uh, this Dr. Spitzer uh, from the American uh, Psychiatric Association, uh, who's just come, you know, uh, been featured in the news, uh, reversing Spitzer, his stance. Spitzer is a psychiatrist at Columbia Medical School who's uh, done a major study of uh, former homosexuals who have uh, uh, changed their, quote, orientation. Uh, and uh, lots of them have done it uh, with the aid of uh, religious groups, and uh, quite a number have done it without any sort of religious uh, uh, involvement, but just through what is conventionally called psychotherapy. Well, my question is, that, uh, do you think it's time for a pastoral on this issue because of the confusion and the gay activism that, uh, which the media is so responsive to? I'm not sure pastoral uh, at this point uh, would uh, solve all the problems. However, we are talking about it in the National uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops. The Church's teaching is constant and, and clear, and uh, certainly those who don't like it know what it is. And it's simply that whether uh, one's orientation is uh, determined uh, or whether it's freely chosen uh, is secondary. Uh, you're still free in your actions. What you do, uh, no matter what your inclinations might be, uh, is not determined, and uh, therefore you can choose to act or not. So it's it's the actions that are judged, not the people. Uh, and uh, 
that spins itself out in various ways. It would spin itself out publicly by saying that's a category mistake to look at uh, homosexuals as a minority class in the way uh, that racism or race is, uh, would be considered minorities. And, um, you know, from that comes a lot of other uh, public policy issues around the nature of marriage, which the state is not free to change. But uh, whether or not a pastoral spelling all this out anew would be helpful is something that I think the U.S. bishops will probably look at again in the near future. Thank you very much. You're welcome. We thank you, sir. 591-7200, the number. Here is the next caller. Good evening. Good evening. Thanks, Dr. Rosenberg, for having the Cardinal on. Mm-hmm. And your eminence. Good yes. evening. Good evening. Um, I wanted to ask one light question and a more serious one. The light question is, I'm a music director at a parish that you'll be visiting this summer for our anniversary mass. Hmm. And I'm wondering, it's a bilingual mass, Spanish and English. Do you have a request as far as a bilingual or English or Spanish piece you'd like to do at the mass? <laughs> no, I, I, I'm always uh, delighted when uh, I can go to the parishes and find good directors. And uh, sometimes they play things I know, and sometimes it's new. Either way, it's enjoyable. So I, I leave that to you. I, surprise me. Well, we look forward to your visit. Thank you. My serious question is... Uh, I homeschool my children, um, and part of that is because I was a bit dismayed since I've taught in Catholic schools myself. I was a bit dismayed for a while at the, at the quality level of Catholic education in Catholic schools. Hmm. You mentioned that the diocese is trying to do something to improve what I think you referred to as the religious uh, illiteracy that had been going on mm-hmm. after the experimentation of the 60s and 70s. Could you be more specific about what's what you're trying to do in that regard, and, and what problems are you trying to um, to overcome? Well, starting with the texts, uh, the, the diocese is mandated for catechesis, whether in schools or, or in uh, catechetical classes outside of Catholic schools, texts that have been found uh, to be consistent with the new catechism of the Catholic Church as the Bishop's Committee uh, judges them. So the Bishop's Committee reviews all the basal catechetical series, as they're called, K through 8. And we'll begin next with the uh, secondary schools, although there it's, it's a much more mixed bag. So the texts are much improved, and I think that's very clear. Uh, sometimes I get 35, 40-year-old parents complaining that uh, their 9- and 10-year-old child is coming home with information they never got, and it's because the texts are better. Um, beyond that, we're trying to educate the teachers uh, by uh, offering... Uh, the possibility of going to uh, some theology classes uh, that are indicated for them, uh, whether the universities do that here or they're done in other ways. We're trying to w- deepen the theological or religious culture of the teachers themselves. Those would be two ways that I think we're looking at this. And then we're very much uh, more, um, well, we're very, I think, clearer now about what is the mission of the school and the way it relates to, to faith. Thank you. You're welcome. We thank you. I sir. hope you're doing well with your children. I knew many homeschooled children in uh, the western part of the United States, and they were wonderful children. It is yeah. going well, and mm-hmm. I also hope that somehow that that there a closer relationship between homeschool parents and Catholic schools can be developed as well. Well, I would hope so too. Sometimes uh, professional educators feel betrayed by homeschoolers. They kind of take it as a front. Or you think you can do better with your kids than we can. We're the professionals. Sometimes catechists take that approach, too. That's, un- that's unfortunate. And yet Vatican II does mention parents as the primary educators of their children. Sure, they always are. I'm sure you would agree with. Absolutely, okay. sure. Thank you. We okay. thank you, sir. <laughs> um, a quick pause for a round of commercials, and then 
directly back to your calls and emails. I've got a few of those I should be reading. Hmm. The email address, extension720 at tribune.com. The phone number, of course, is 591-7200, and we return after this. And we'll go back to the phones in just a moment, but first one or two emails. Uh, here's a very simple and direct one. Please ask the Good Shepherd of the Chicago Diocese how uh, the recent time spent with the pontiff has changed his relationship with the Vicar of Christ. God bless you cordially and in the man's name. I think, uh, thank you. The question concerns my preaching the retreat to the Holy Father and his mm-hmm. household and the. That was back in the January, wasn't it? Uh, no, that was in March. In it was March. the second week of, of Lent, uh, mm-hmm. the period before Easter. <clears throat> and uh, every year, the Holy Father, like all Catholic priests, is supposed to do a week's retreat. And there's a retreat master, somebody who preaches, and I preached the um, homilies and sermons this year. Uh, it was a very humbling experience uh, to, uh, not so much to, to preach to the Pope, the Pope, uh, you know, listens to calls to conversion the same as any other sinner, but to spend that time praying uh, with the Holy Father, and uh, because they pray the office together, they had benediction, blessed sacrament, they pray the rosary together, and so for several hours a day I was with them in prayer, and I really deeply appreciated that. Maybe that's changed my relationship, but um, I always joke a little bit and say, you know, when they ask how did it go, well, the Holy Father is holier than ever. I mean, obviously the <laughs> retreat worked, but it was it was a humbling experience for me, and I'm very grateful for the invitation. Again, it was said by some, uh, at least in the uh, among the core of journalists, that uh, the invitation to uh, uh, to preach at such at that retreat <laughs> is usually given to papavoli, to men who are being considered as potential. Oh. Ask, uh, candidates for the papacy. Well, I don't know. Most of the time, it's not a cardinal who who gives it, and uh, there are a lot of folks who've given it. It's given every year, and uh, very few of them have ever become pope. Mm-hmm. One who did give it and became pope is John Paul II, but yes. I think he's probably the only one. So, so. <laughs> uh, back to another uh, email. This is a rather challenging one. Please ask Cardinal George his opinion of the work of the Chicago-based Call to Action organization. They are about. Uh, 20,000 members nationwide working for change within the church. Women's ordination is a main agenda item. They are inspired by the idea that the Holy Spirit guides the people in the pews and not just church leadership. Also, please ask if he is aware of the pro-choice Catholic organization known as CFFC, Catholics for a Free Choice, and their pro-choice journal, Conscience. Yes, I'm familiar with, uh, with both of those organizations, and I think they're very different. Um, the Holy Spirit does inspire everybody, not just uh, bishops. The bishops are there to guarantee, however, and there's a kind of a special providence of God, we believe, uh, that uh, when the bishops agree among themselves and are in agreement with uh, the Holy Father, uh, the church is preserved from error. Um, That doesn't mean that, uh, you know, everything uh, is free of error, but uh, when it is clearly taught as part of the faith, and so uh, you had uh, a lot of, I think, very well-intentioned people, certainly in um, the called action movement, who wanted to see certain changes. The difficulty is the principle of discerning what changes are possible and what aren't. Uh, and there it has to be something uh, that is theologically discussed, and uh, a change can't be contradictory to the Catholic faith. 
I think uh, the understanding of the sacrament of orders, of its nature, is not well understood by a lot of people in call to action and outside. But you can't generalize. I mean, it, it's, it's a movement, and you can't say because somebody belongs to call to action, therefore he or she believes the following. It, it's very free. Um, some of the things they say, I think, are incompatible with the Catholic faith. Others are entertainable. And uh, a lot depends on attitude. Uh, again, um, I think all of us, hierarchy and everybody else, has to guard against self-righteousness. And uh, where is the constant uh, contact with the tradition that unites us with Christ, rather than what I want or what my experience teaches, which is often the way we go in this culture? Uh, Catholics for Free Choice is something very different, and th that is a deliberately anti-Catholic organization made up of estranged people who may have been baptized, but who have a deep hatred, I think, for uh, Catholic teaching and for the Catholic hierarchy. And uh, to use the word Catholics uh, and then to turn against uh, the Holy See, against the teaching of the Church, against the bishops, in the rather sophisticated intellectually way they do it, but still crude uh, in its purpose, is, I think, simply dishonest and the organization is disingenuous. A clear response to uh, a challenging question. 591 7200, the number. Good evening, you're on the air. Yes, good evening. I'd like to address the problem of anti Semitism by expressing a few of my own opinions and then asking the Cardinal for his and for his opinion on the Pope's recent uh, uh, statements in that regard. I know that forgiveness and reconciliation are very ennobling to the human spirit when they happen. They tend to promote mental health, and we need it in this area if we need it in any. I think anti-Semitism is one of the most tragic outrages in the history of the church and uh, Jesus was not put to death by the Jews he was himself Jewish he was put to death by a few religious authorities along with the Roman government and a lot of Jewish peasants and intellectuals of his day followed him so it wasn't the Jews who killed Jesus There's well no... the, the Pope himself has said that clearly. yeah and I I mean, it's it's so tragic. Um, the scriptures that are used to justify anti-Semitism or interpreted as doing so need to be looked at again. It's a tragic misunderstanding, but I uh, would like to know, uh, as I say, the Cardinal's opinion. I, I think that we Christians owe great debts to the Jews, myself. We owe our religion to the Jews. Jesus, exactly. Jesus said salvation is from the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. The Blessed Virgin Mary, blessed among all women, is a Jewess. Uh, all the disciples, Peter, Paul, James, John, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, they're all Jews. Indeed. Uh, so, of course, uh, you know, uh, but they're Jews who, who have come to believe that Jesus is universal Savior and is risen from the dead, and that's a big difference. And then uh, the early controversy in the church was whether or not Gentiles could be disciples of Jesus if they weren't circumscribed and didn't observe all the elements of the Jewish law. And then from there, salvation uh, in Jesus was offered to the nations, and the rest is history. And the history is often sorry, as you said. It's a history of uh, religiously motivated anti-Semitism. But it's a mixed history. It isn't just... Uh, there was that kind of sense that uh, these are uh, Jesus own people and uh, the Lord has a certain uh, purpose in, in keeping them uh, not converted to Christianity uh, perhaps until he comes again in glory uh, as we would understand it so you go back and forth in, in various church fathers sometimes you can find terrible things other times you find pretty good things and um, 
the the uh, new understanding, I think, that the shock of, of the Shoah, of the Holocaust, has forced us to go back and reread that history again and to ask forgiveness of God for uh, all the affronts and, and the, the, the murder at times of our Jewish brothers and sisters. Could I pose a question yeah. in that light? Yeah. Well, just I just returned from a lecture at Aurora University where one of the speakers, Jewish, said, uh, if, we, if we have to excise certain ta- sacred texts or renounce certain parts of our faith in order to heal the pain of other people's faith, then so be it. And I, I couldn't be that radical about it, but I would like to ask you, do you think it is intellectually or otherwise dishonest for Christians to say to Jewish folk, it's fine to stay the way you are, or vice versa, for Jewish people to say it to Christians, or should I find a different phrase than intellectually dishonest? I'm not sure what's dishonest about it. Uh, Conversion is always a matter of grace and is free, and I think uh, we should live in a society where each is free to express his or her faith. Uh, what happens next is up to God, not up to us to decide. A kind of a proselytism where you put force or pressure of any sort on people is wrong, no matter what kind of conversions you're talking um, to. As both of you know, I'm sure, um, a recent event has sort of dramatized this continuing uh, uh, potential grievance, or has once again activated um, a grievance that has been in some part laid to rest by the very uh, significant uh, statements by the Pope uh, in the recent past. I referred to the events in Damascus, and I'm, I read a news account. President Bashar Assad, almost uh, a year into his rule, is reverting more and more to the policies of his autocratic father when it comes to Israel, is speaking more harshly than Hafez Assad ever did, greeting Pope John Paul uh, John Paul II, on a four-day visit to Syria that ended Tuesday, that's Tuesday last week, the president put the blame for Israeli-Palestinian violence on Israel. He then went a step further to mix politics and religion, saying Israelis, quote, tried to kill the principles of all religions with the same mentality in which they betrayed Jesus Christ and the same way they tried to betray and kill the prophet Muhammad. And the great complaint, of course, was that the pope did not say him nay on this, but in fact made no response uh, directly to this assault. Well, his whole life is is a response to that, and every other statement, uh, everyone knows uh, that the Pope uh, doesn't uh, subscribe to that in any way, shape, or form. Um, To bring up uh, the uh, fact that he didn't immediately respond, you know, I, I think is unfair. Uh, I don't know what they were expected uh, to get into some kind of an argument or to rebuke uh, his host. It's not something he's done anywhere else. It's not something anybody does in those kind of contexts. Uh, I think everybody knows what went on there. And I don't think the Pope allowed himself to be manipulated. Mm. He didn't respond immediately. What he said, or was a clear rebuke. And what he's done and, and all uh, is clear enough. So I think, uh, you know, Every time something is said in your presence that you don't agree with, um, depends. I suppose he could have, depending upon how much he heard uh, and how much he understood, etc., and uh, what kind of remarks he would have been able to formulate on the spot. That's not always a wise thing to do, particularly in a language that you're not always at home in. I think I think God is much too loving to be coercive. Thank you. We thank you, sir, for the call. 
And we pause for a last round of commercials and then directly back to the phones on 591-7200. And we return to conversation with Francis Cardinal George. Uh, we've been having a private conversation uh, <laughs> so that I didn't get my headsets on, but we go back to the phones, and here is the next caller. Hello, you're on the air. Good evening, Mr. Rosenberg and Cardinal George. Good evening. Uh, Cardinal George, only a, a very few churches in the archdiocese and really across the country offer traditional Catholics uh, the traditional Latin Mass as an alternative to uh, worship as opposed to the uh, Novus Ordo, which many believe to be either invalid or illicit. And I was wondering why there aren't more traditional Latin Masses available. Well, if, if you're a traditional Catholic, one who believes uh, that the Holy Spirit does govern the Church, and the Ecumenical Council uh, opened up uh, a program of reform of the liturgy, which then Paul VI instituted, to say that that uh, way of worshiping is uh, illicit, has no foundation, to say it's invalid means that uh, you're not Catholic. Uh, now, the uh, however, availability of uh, the 1962 missiles you being used, the Latin, traditional Latin Mass, you said, is something that's also very important. It's part of our history and it should be maintained. We have four places, uh, five where it's once a month, but four where it's regularly offered. If we need more, we'll have more. So I, I think the decision on the number depends upon uh, the uh, pastoral need. And if there are a larger number of people who want to have Mass celebrated in that fashion, I'd be happy to extend the places where it's celebrated. Good deal. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Of course, Thank you, you actually have a number of churches where many other modern languages are used in the liturgy, don't you? Oh, sure. There are 26 languages used to celebrate the Eucharist in the Archdiocese of Chicago, from Croatian and Polish, obviously, and Spanish are the two mm -hmm. other than English that are most used, but Hungarian and uh, Korean and a couple of parishes, um, you know, uh, Ukrainian, uh, all kinds of uh, Eastern European languages. It is indeed a Catholic church. Uh, that's true. 591-7200, yeah. the number and the area code, or rather the area code is 312, and the email address is extension720 at tribune.com. You are next on the air. Good evening. Good evening, Milton, Colonel George. It's a pleasure to speak to both of you. Um, I'm a convert to the Catholic faith uh, within the last 10 years. Mm. And I came from a small parish in southern Illinois, and just in the last 10 years I've noticed a big dwindling as far as priests, um, the the number of them, especially in the, in the rural areas. Do you think in your lifetime you'll see um, the reversal where priests will be able to marry? Uh, I really don't know about that, uh, if that's a possibility. Uh, priests won't marry, but what the church will do would uh, adopt the uh, discipline that many of the Orthodox churches have. Bishops are unmarried, but uh, married men can be ordained priests. Uh, however, an ordained man can't marry, and that would be the discipline probably we would accept. I'm not sure. There is an increase now in uh, their more seminarians and more priests in the world in large and they're starting to be a turnaround in our own country and seminarians it's still small and uh, whether or not opening it to to married men would be the answer I don't know because when you talk to mainline Protestants at least uh, they're having the same problems of uh, inviting um, people 
into uh, the ranks of their own clergy. So I'm not sure that marriage is uh, the answer to uh, the problem. However, it might be part of it. Okay. Thank you, ma'am. You're welcome. We thank you, ma'am. And to another, 591-7200. Good evening. Hello. I'm so privileged to speak to both of you. I'm, I'm a Catholic priest for the Diocese of Peoria, and I'm currently pastor of a parish in Odell, Illinois, and Campus, Illinois. Mm. But I be, will be moving to the campus of uh, Illinois, the uh, University of Illinois, and I'm looking for the Cardinal's advice for mission and the Newman Foundation. Well, you have an excellent program uh, at the University of Illinois uh, in Champaign. Uh, the, the, the director is, is a marvelous priest, and he succeeds someone who really founded a great uh, Newman Center there. So I, it seems to me that what, if I were you, I'd go in and, and take a good look around and, and learn what's going on, because I think it's a great center. But obviously, you have your sense of who you are as a priest that guides you, and you have the confidence of your bishop. He wouldn't send you down there. He didn't think you were a good priest. So congratulations. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Raman, thank you for all that you do for the Archdiocese. Thank you. Bye thank bye. you, sir. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. You know, I must tell you, to turn a touch on the personal side, there is a priest I knew who haunts me. He was my student at the University of Chicago. He did a doctorate in social psychology. Uh, the Jesuit, hmm. Ignacio Martin Barro. Oh, yes, yes. Did you know Ignacio at all? Uh, no, but I know the story. Yeah, he was, killed. he was, of course, killed. He was one of those mm-hmm. six Jesuits. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 Father Elacuria was yes. the president of the university in uh, San Salvador, mm-hmm. and uh, the, uh, one of Dobuisson's killing squads mm-hmm. came in that night and killed the six Jesuits and the two women who worked in the domicile, and uh, Ignacio was uh, very much a liberation theology mm-hmm. priest, Yes, and he and I would argue about that a good mm-hmm. deal. He was a mm-hmm. tremendous scholar and a very impressive fellow, and one could hardly think of him as a student. Mm-hmm. And he was older than the usual students. He was about 36 or 37 when he was with us. But I often argued with him and said, you can't be a Marxist and a Catholic priest. And he said, yes, of course you can. Marxism is merely a method of analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's great injustice in the world, and Jesus would have wanted us to uh, serve the victimized. And that's all that liberation theology is. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you make? And liberation theology still flourishes, I think, in of the Latin American world to some... Well, not exactly, not in the same way. For, for, for one thing, uh, the Marxist alternative is now exposed as, sure. as, as uh, a cure that's worse than the disease. So I'm not sure you can, in Marxism or any other school of thought, separate method and, con- and content in quite that clear way. And it's not, it is much more than a, a methodology of analysis. Um, however, uh, there is still the disease. And uh, if uh, you're a pastoral man, as he was, and you ask, what is oppressing my people? And the answer comes back, capitalism, particularly uh, capitalism that is foreign-based. Well, then you're going to look around and see who's, who's the enemy of uh, the oppressors of my people. And it was Marxism in that case. Now there's a little bit of a reshuffling with the collapse of Marxism, even as, a, as an intellectual uh, Exercise. I think Marxism is, uh, as a negative uh, critique, not without uh, importance as a positive alternative. It's a disaster. But um, so I can understand why he would have that reaction. Uh, what else was he going to say? If, if uh, capitalism is the major oppressor, then uh, 
then of course you're going to be anti-capitalist. I think that's too simplistic in some ways. You have to think about your own culture. What else is oppressing your people? How is it that uh, you had these people uh, within your own country who were uh, maybe servants of international capitalism, but nonetheless willing servants? There are a lot of other variables that are ignored. Uh, it's just a little bit too simple. Um, but nonetheless, the intention and the goodness uh, is there, and uh, maybe they made a mistake in reaching for that as a solution, but uh, the problem is still there. Where do you turn? Where do priests turn? Is there a, sort of a, a definable political stance, uh, say within a given country? It must vary mm -hmm. a great deal from country to country. In our own country, is there a definable political stance that more or less characterizes the typical parish priest? Uh, I think uh, no, no political party that is currently uh, available in the United States would be totally consistent with Catholic social teaching. So you take a mm. look and you say, here, they're good on this, here, they're good on that. Um, there uh, are issues, however, which have to be respected. The, the one is the life issues. Uh, no killing, deliberate killing of anybody, no abortion, no euthanasia, etc. So to the extent to which political parties are open to that uh, social policy. They're against Catholic social teaching. And we talk to issues constantly, poverty and the causes of poverty and, and uh, medical health available for all. There are all kinds of issues that are addressed, and we try to do that without being captured by any political party. We go back to the phones. Time is very short. We'll work in a few more quick calls, and here is the next. Hello, you're on the air. Good evening, Cardinal. Good evening. Uh, I don't mean to sound disrespectful or contentious, but my interpretation of Christianity is that no man is above another. Do you see rank or title within the church as a necessary part of such a large org organization as a means to maintain order and to achieve objectives kind of in a military uh, respect, or do you believe that we as Catholics should view those who hold the high positions as being closer to God? No, not necessarily closer to God. Sanctity is one thing, office is another. And uh, sanctity, we're never quite sure, but everybody's called to it, and those are the real heroes. However, the, the hierarchy of the church is not uh, a human invention in its origin, at least. If I thought that, I wouldn't be in this job. It's a matter of faith that Jesus did name the Twelve. That's the beginning of uh, the distinction within the rank of the disciples, of those who have particular offices to serve the unity of the body. And from the Twelve come the Seven, who are the deacons, and from that uh, come eventually the appointment of people who are priests, so for local communities that the bishops can't get to, I mean, it's a whole history there, but it has its origin both in Christ's actions and in Christ's will. Uh, so it's a body. A body is differentiated. A head is not a foot, and, uh, you know, those are Pauline images. It's not a mass of undifferentiated disciples who are, uh, you know, no different one from the other in their functioning in the church. What is your interpretation of the text? Uh, and I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou, sh thou shalt lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, that's, uh, those are words that he also spoke to the Twelve, and so from there we, we have the definition of uh, the bishop as uh, the head of every diocese or local church, and uh, the Pope having universal primacy, because what the bishops collectively have, he has in his own person as well. Uh, but that's a, that's a service, uh, you know, it's a service of unity. That's what the Holy Father keeps saying now. We should look at how that universal primacy is exercised so that it's truly at the service of the unity of the body, uh, and not uh, in any way, uh, you know, personal aggrandizement, as it has sometimes been corrupted. 
Um, I think that that's Christ's will, that there be some visible point of reference so that you know where you have to gather, not to be around a man, but in order to be in Christ, and visibly so. And it served that purpose well. It's been a delight having you here again. Oh, thank you very much, Professor. I hope we can do this once a year. <laughs> thank you. There are a couple other questions that I half expected you to bring up. Oh, tell me what time. one of them was. We have one minute left to do it. Oh, I don't know. You've had a number of guests on that would have been interesting to have a conversation about uh, Professor Wills's book, for example. Uh, which brings together a number of these issues. It would have been interesting to um, talk a little bit more about racism. I think uh, that we have a chance in the in the city, at least, of making a big difference now, uh, and I would hope that we don't miss that. Um, just a number of things, but it's always a delight to be with you. Thank I, you. I know you did a major uh, statement on racism. Yes. Uh, in Chicago and. Mm -hmm. uh, Looking, it was on the occasion of Martin Luther King's birthday. I believe. No, not his birthday. That's or the, the way of co-opting the date of his assassination. Assassination. That's right. Yeah. We co-opt people by celebrating their birthdays, but it was the day of his death that yeah. I think is more important. I did read the statement, and I thought it uh, very apt and very moving. Thank you. Our guest has been Francis Cardinal George, the Archbishop of Chicago. A few quick words by programs to come tomorrow: eating and aging with Dr. Michael Royson of the University of Chicago Medical School, author of. The book, The Real Age Diet. Jumping hmm. forward, uh, Monday night, uh, we circle the globe with Peter Greenberg, who is often called the travel detective. Tuesday, a program after a ball game. Wednesday night, a full two hours in which we examine modern cosmology, something that I spoke about earlier tonight, uh, with three working scientists, among them Michael Turner, one of the very distinguished members of the astrophysics and cosmology faculty at the University of Chicago. And... Uh, on Thursday night, the past and the future of American foreign policy, with a panel that includes John Riley, the outgoing president of the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations. Friday night, all we'll do is untangle the airport controversy uh, that has haunted Chicago for so many years. All of that to come for tonight. Time's up. Thanks again to Cardinal George, and thanks to all for listening.